Okay, so I am from uh, the state of Georgia. I, I'm from the South, and um, I did that thing that all Southern mothers tell you not to do, which is I, I married a, a woman from the North, and um, and uh, best decision I ever made. Not sure if my, my mom feels the same way, but she's coming around, guys. We're 10 years in. And um, when you marry somebody, like Northerners and Southerners, we're still... You know, Americans, we still have a lot, we speak the same language, we have a lot in common. But even minor cultural differences go a long way when you're married, especially when you start having, when you start having kids. I remember when we first had our first daughter, Georgia, whose name is Georgia, um, uh, it was, like, really important to me that, like, when she started talking, that she said, like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. Because, like, where I came from, it was, like, it was, like, a swift backhand if you didn't do that. Um, and my wife was just, like, not needing to do that. Like, she thought it was kind of weird to do that. And, uh, and I was quietly inside, like, you're a Christian, right? Like, Because um, <laughs> I'm, like, pretty sure the Bible says, like, you know, honor your mother and father and, like, respect those that are older than you, right? And I just, I was, I was legitimately, like, questioning her, like, commitment to, to Jesus and her godliness and, like, whether she'd read the Bible, even though she grew up a pastor's kid. Um, because she didn't want to do the no ma'am, yes ma'am thing. Um, and of course she does believe that our kids need to honor their mother and father and respect their elders, but she expresses it differently than me. And there are ways that we live and things that we think are typical or normal or that they're just basic like godliness, living out your faith kind of stuff that are very much defined by our cultural Surroundings and uh, defined by how we were raised. And the question that I want to look at tonight with you is, what does God say about those things that are really part of our culture and part of our raising, but for us, they, they grow to the place of defining what it means to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. And we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 10. And the book of Acts, um, if you haven't been with us, is basically the story of what happened after the life of Jesus, after his life and his death and his resurrection. How, was, how did it happen that the Christian faith went from this very small, localized group of people that followed Jesus to this worldwide movement and phenomenon that we know it as today? So we're going to read in Acts chapter 10. It's a little bit of a long reading, but um, it's a long narrative. It's one of the longest narratives in the book of Acts. And I'll read it with some gusto. Not gusto, but... What's the word I want to be thinking of here? Quickness as I kill time. All right, uh, Acts chapter 10. Uh, this is the word of the living God. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Alms are like money that you give to the poor. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's about noon. 
And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Uh, this is the word of the living God, and so I'm going to pray and ask that God would uh, help us to understand it. Father, we're grateful um, for this evening. We're grateful for this place, this campus, which we love, and where we get to have our life together. And Lord, we're thankful for your word, um, which uh, is truly you speaking to us in time and in space and Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that, would, that could understand it, eyes that would see Jesus, ears that would hear your voice, that we would be drawn to you and that we would worship you. And Lord, uh, particularly this week, as we've uh, seen so much uh, on social media um, of friends and loved ones um, speaking candidly and bravely about their experience um, uh, with sexual assault, sexual abuse, with interpersonal violence, Uh, Lord, we pray for those among us tonight and on our campus, especially uh, the women among us uh, who are survivors of sexual assault, uh, survivors of sexual abuse and harassment. And Lord, we grieve uh, with you the objectification of bodies, the using of bodies for power and control. And Lord, we beg you to heal wounds, um, wounds that are often and typically unseen, wounds that are inflicted maybe uh, uh, in uh, uh, ways each day that are unseen by, by many of us. And Lord, we, we pray that you would bring us, especially us men, here and on our campus to repentance and to full obedience to you, the one who created women and men in your image. And Lord, that means that each of us here is beautiful and worth respect and love and protection, and that's because you created us. And Lord, we ask that you would do that, that you would be kind to us and be kind to our campus. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the Bible um, admittedly can be hard to understand sometimes, especially passages like this one, because you're just like, what does this vision even mean? Um, And here's part of why I think the Bible is hard for us particularly to understand. It's because when most of us pick up the Bible and read it, we think that it is primarily about us and it is written to us. So when we read a passage of Scripture and it doesn't make sense to us, we're struggling to understand, I thought this was about me and I thought it was written to me. But in fact, the Bible is primarily about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done in time and in space to love his people and to love the world. And it's written not primarily to us, 2017 people living in Boone, North Carolina, but it was written to specific people in specific times and in specific places throughout history. And if we establish from the get-go and understand that the Bible is about Jesus and it's written to people that aren't us, it actually doesn't lose um, meaning for us. It actually becomes tremendously relevant to our lives. It's like a will. Some of you guys have had to work with a will because you lost a loved one. Um, if, if someone dies and they leave a will behind, the will isn't about you, right? It's about the person who has died. It's about what they've accomplished, what they've accumulated, right? And it's not even written to you. It's written to a person called an executor. But it can have tremendous benefit for you, even though it's not about you, nor is it written to you. And tonight, when we look at this passage, what I want to do is see first what this is about, that this passage is about Jesus and about what Jesus is doing. And it's not to us, it's actually to a specific person named Peter and to these first century Christian people about 2,000 years ago. But it really, really, really matters for us tonight. So what, what I want to do, I want to be honest, is there's going to be some unpacking at the beginning of this. I understand it's midterms time, but just hang in, hang in with me because I think it'll pay off. Toward the end. So let's start with what Jesus is doing in this passage. There are two people that God appears to in this passage. One's dude's name is Cornelius, which is an epic name. Um, it's a very strong name. My wife said if we had a male child, she wanted to name it Peter. And I was thinking, I was like, we should go with Cornelius. This is a way cooler name. Cornelius is a high-ranking Roman soldier, okay, who believed in the God of Israel and worshipped the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the same God. That, that Peter believed in, but he was not ethnically Jewish. He was ethnically Italian. He was ethnically Roman. And what that means is that he prayed to God. He was generous to God's people. He worshiped in the local synagogue, but he did not follow the dietary restrictions of the Jewish people at the time. They ate only kosher food. There were certain clean foods and certain unclean foods. There were certain clothing you could wear and certain clothing you couldn't wear. He didn't follow those rules, nor was he circumcised, which was the sign that you were part of the Jewish nation. But what he was doing was he was worshiping God, and he was waiting for the Messiah, the promised one that the Jewish people were waiting to come. And what God says is, he says, I heard your prayers, Cornelius, and I want you to go, and I want you to send for this guy named Peter and bring him to your house. Now, Peter was a follower of Jesus. He was one of the leaders of the young local church in Jerusalem. And he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was ethnically Jewish. And so what that means is that he was trained like all devout Jewish men and women of his time to never enter the house of a non-Jewish person, what we would call a Gentile person. Never to enter their house lest you become unclean. And definitely not to sit down to a meal with a Gentile person. This is just the, 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 um, the way it was in this 
time. And there was, that's because there was actually rules in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus and other places that basically said there was, there was such strict dietary restrictions on what you could eat and couldn't eat and how it had to be prepared that if you ate with a non-Jewish person, it was almost impossible to eat their food and not become ceremonially unclean. That would mean that you couldn't go into the temple to worship. And this is what that means. That means that Peter and Cornelius could know each other. They could have a connection of some kind. They could recognize that they worship the same God, but they could never have a meaningful friendship together. Because what it means to be in a meaningful relationship with someone is that you sit down and you eat meals with them. You share part of your life with them. You do life with them. And food is one of those things that, and it's pretty clearly seen even in our own culture about who we eat with, who we don't eat with, what our practices have been of eating with people throughout time, is that food can either really unite people or that food can really divide people. Now the question for us is, why did God have these cleanliness laws? In the first? Why did God set it up in the scripture that his people couldn't really eat with non-Jewish people? And this is why. They were there to make God's people different and strange from the rest of the world. They didn't eat like the people around them. They didn't wear clothing like the people around them. They didn't go about life like the people around them. Because these were God's special people. It was a very small nation of people. And he said, I want you to be different to the rest of the world. Why? Because I want you to show, I want you to be a light to the world of what I'm like. That I have a special people that are dear to me. They're different than the rest of the people on the earth. And I make them clean. They are different from from everyone else. They're special. And God was announcing to the world through Israel's eating and drinking and wearing of clothes that these are my special, clean people. And they are different um, and they didn't really do a great job. If you read through the Old Testament, what, part of what I love about the Bible is it's not a story um, of people getting it right, but of people failing again and again and again to be faithful to God and God continuing to forgive and be faithful to them. But they were supposed to be a light to the world. Now think of what that would do to you psychologically if you were Peter and Cornelius and you were living in a community where there was a strong non-Jewish population and a strong Jewish population. A Jewish person like Peter would probably see a Gentile like Cornelius as dirty, as other, as outside of the community that he belonged to. Because, you know, after all, there's certain things that you do if you're serious about following God, and these people didn't do those things. So therefore, how could I really take your faith seriously? Hopefully, as I start to unpack this, those of you that are especially from the southern church world begin to feel some close connections. There are things you do when you're serious about God and these people didn't do them. And a Gentile like Cornelius would see a devout Jewish person like Peter uh, and think, man, they're so stuck up. They don't, eat, they don't shop at the same place I go to. They don't use the same butcher as me. They won't even come to my house and eat my food. And actually, pork at the time would have been one of the cheapest meats to get your hands on. And so it, it just looked, the optics of it were bad in a community. It's like they're kind of overly fundamentalist about things and kind of mean. They don't shop at my store. They don't eat at my table. And here's, here's, here's the reality. Peter and Cornelius, very different, very different raisings, very different cultural backgrounds. They were both doing their best to worship and follow the living God, but they were heavily influenced by the culture that they grew up in. Okay? What seemed and felt right to them and normal to them was heavily influenced by their culture. So Peter's at this guy's house, and he's up on top of the house trying to get some of these sea breezes. 
It's right around lunchtime. He's super hungry. And he falls into a trance, as you do. And uh, he sees in this trance a huge sheet coming down out of heaven. He sees it three times. And on the sheet is every kind of animal on the earth besides fish and stuff that lives in the water, right? These are, if you're familiar with the story of the ark that Noah built, it's pretty much all the animals that would have gone onto that ark are there. All the clean animals that would have been okay to eat and all the unclean animals that would have not been okay for a devout Jewish guy to eat. And God says, Peter, I want you to get up and I want you to kill one of these animals and eat it. And Peter has a way... This is at least the third time that Peter says no when God tells him to do something. Jesus is like, I got to go to the cross. He's like, nah, man, you shouldn't do that. Jesus is like, hey, I got to wash your feet. He's like, nah, dude, you shouldn't do that. Like, I would think at some point, like when God tells you, like, do something, he's like, yes, sir, like, okay. Um, but he says, no, I can't eat that. I've never eaten something that's unclean. I've never, not only would it feel wrong and gross, it would feel like sinning to him. And God says, look, what God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call something uh, unclean that God has made clean. And here's what that means as we think about what Jesus is doing in this passage. God was taking away the things that separated his people from the rest of the people in the world. There was a food and cultural barrier. And he said, I'm doing away with that barrier now. And the reason why is because Jesus, oh, easy now. Uh, just bought this microphone, so don't want to punch it again. Yeah, yeah. Jack's stressed. Jesus came into the world, and he lived, and he died, and was raised for his people. And this, what that means is that Jesus is the one that makes us clean. So all the laws about being clean and being separate from the world are now irrelevant. Now that Jesus is here, Jesus is the one that makes us clean. And now Jesus is making his special people not just a geopolitical entity in, 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 the, in the Near East, but he's gathering a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And he says, I'm making all of you my special people that are, that are clean. And Jesus makes all the distinctions between us in some way irrelevant so that now you can meaningfully relate with those outside your tribe. That's what's happening. And that's the principle But it's really hard to make that happen in specifics. You could say, yes, 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 that's true. And and I want to look specifically at what this means for Peter. Because it's really hard in practice. God is removing all Peter's reasons for not loving people. The reason why Peter would say, that person probably needs Jesus, but I'm going to stay over here. God says, I'm removing that excuse from you, and you now have to move toward that person in love. When he has this vision... It happens three times, and Peter's literally standing there going, I have literally no idea what that means. Um, You know, sometimes when God speaks, it's not like he provides the commentary along with it. And as he's standing there, three guys walk up to the house, and they go, hey, we're looking for Peter. And God says, you need to go with these people. They are three not ethically Jewish men, three Gentile men. They show up right at lunchtime, right when it's time to eat a meal. And they're hungry, just like Peter. And they've come in a long way, and they've got to go a long way, so they need somewhere to stay for the night. Immediately, God gives Peter the opportunity to follow what he has done. And welcoming these guys into this house for Peter and for this other guy, Simon, would have felt like the most um, uncomfortable uh, and potentially sinful thing that they could possibly do. Plus, one is a Roman soldier, okay? And the guy that called them is an even higher ranking Roman soldier. And the Jews and the Romans were not exactly on super good terms in in this moment. And and a couple of decades later, Rome is going to completely destroy Jerusalem. It's really, really tense. So not only is this uncomfortable, it's unsafe feeling. 
It would, it would sort of be like um, if Kendrick Lamar was like having lunch in his house in Compton, as he does, um, and Richard Spencer shows up to his house. You guys know Richard Spencer is a white supremacist. He's sort of, he's having a he's speaking tomorrow at Florida. He's the one that got the rally going in Charlottesville. Shows up at Kendrick's house. Not only would it feel uncomfortable for Kendrick to welcome him into his house to spend the night at his house, it would feel really unsafe and wrong for him to do that. It's uncomfortable, threatening, wrong. And for Peter, it means that he's going to basically have to unlearn everything that he already thinks about how to relate with non-Jewish people. He's going to have to get rid of all that. And imagine if someone else saw what he was doing. Imagine how he would be treated. Imagine the loss of respect in the community for Peter. And here's, the, here's what we're bringing this all into. It would have felt unnatural for Peter, yet he listened to what God said more than what felt normal to him. When God said, you can't call that person unclean, he said, they feel really unclean to me, but I'm going to trust what you say regardless. And here's what that means for you. You're seeing what, it, what Jesus is doing, what that means specifically in time for Peter. But here's why that's, that's really relevant to you. God has removed the barriers between you and other people in the world. God has removed the barriers and the excuses that may keep us from loving and welcoming the people around us. No one is unclean or off limits to a Christian. In Christ, nobody is unclean. Yet Christians, often we often live like we're part of that old system. Like our job on the earth is to be this like singularly holy and clean people who do not associate with those because we might get something unsavory on us. We are afraid of what we think is unclean. But Jesus told us the truth, and it's this. It's not what goes into a person or what they put on or really even what they do that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of a person's heart, the Lord Jesus says, that defiles a person. And my question, as we bring this to a little bit of application, um, is whether you identify more with Peter or you identify more with Cornelius, what in your cultural background keeps you from loving other people and meaningfully and going into friendship with them? I'm not talking about like, you will show up to their thing and be like, yeah, we're friends, but actually like sitting down and connecting in friendship with people around you. Uh, I had like 26 examples on here. My wife said, you legitimately can only do three of these. So um, just know there was, more, there was more, but you guys have time, you know. Uh, alcohol. Um, the Bible is pretty clear that alcohol is a blessing. It's a good thing. Um, that wine gladdens our heart. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a party and there's going to be wine. It's going to be great. But also the Bible says, hey, you got to honor like the law of the land. You know, that is like, there's like drinking ages, these things. You're, we're all familiar with this. Um, uh, and, and hey, like don't like use alcohol to like get hammered. You know, like don't drink to drunkenness. It's, it's a beautiful thing within its limit. Yet some of us, because again, what feels right to us, treat alcohol like any use of alcohol is at least unwise and probably sinful. Um, and I understand that within that nuance, there's, there's alcoholism, there's abuse of alcohol, under, understanding all that. Some of us have to be very, you know, in a sense, legalistic with alcohol and how we use it personally. But some of us are like, why would you need that? It's like, it's like this like, moment of like spiritual pride and distance 
I don't know if I can really take that person seriously as a Christian because they, they use alcohol. On the flip side, um, some of y'all think that your brothers and sisters are legalistic because they like you know follow laws and uh, and they, they don't drink to drunkenness and they're like they're so judgy toward me. Um, we use alcohol as this interesting cultural barrier. Uh, another one is sex. Uh, obviously, the Bible has a lot to say about sex and the, use, the proper use of our sexuality. All I really want to say about that is um, some of us are willing to be close with someone and connected with them and real friends to them as long as they are using sex the way that we think that they should. If they're struggling sexually, they're struggling with their sexuality, um, they're, they're exploring what, what that means for them, or if um, uh, they mi- begin to misuse sex, I've seen it time and time again. Um, many of us begin to treat that person as if they are ritually unclean to us. Like, well, they made, that, they made that mistake, and now they are no longer... I can't really be close to them because, you know, i gotta, I got to kind of take care of my own relationship with Jesus. They're going to kind of pull me down. Instead of moving into that person, uh, moving in, into that person's life, we, we back away from them and treat them as unclean. Um, another is, is our political views, I, and I don't want to say a lot about this. I will say this: um, this is off the cuff. Uh, over it, ha- it happens every year, every semester, that somebody comes to RUF and they hear me talking about like, "Hey guys, we got to like break down the barriers racially and ethnically, and we got to work against racism." And they're like, "There goes Chris. He's talking about politics again." And I, hopefully, this passage gives us a pretty good look that like. Talking about people across races and cultures connecting and being unified and loving each other is very close to God's heart and very close to the heart of what we call the good news of the Lord Jesus and the gospel. This isn't just something like a soapbox. If we don't talk about race and racism, I would think maybe we're letting our political and cultural allegiances control us and not the scripture. But our political views more broadly, um, are you willing to meaningfully love and connect with someone that has different social views on social and political issues than you do. Um, this is um, one of the ways that I think that Christians have an opportunity to actually really be that beautiful light in the world, is that we go, I understand why that person has different views than me, and I accept them, and I'm close with them. Um, that's why we have our uh, gospel friendship small group, so you can actually work through those honest reasons why people have views unlike yours. And my question is, and not to get into all the different things, um, we, we need to recognize that most of our like really deep-held political views are culturally uh, charged. Um, they feel right to us because of the kind of people we grew up with, either because that's how they thought or we're reacting against how they thought. And are your allegiances to your politics or to your cultural preferences stronger than your allegiance to Jesus? and your preference for his truth in the scripture. Who are you treating as unclean is basically my question. Um, Because look, God um, loves the person that you have good reasons for writing off. Uh, And he doesn't just love them a little bit. He's committed to the health, safety, future, and well-being of that person, even though you've written them off. And part of growing in grace is listening to God's word more than what feels natural for you. Um, it's asking God to remove the reasons you have for writing people off. Um, because this, and I'll end on this. What's beautiful, I think, if you, and if you just like checked out and you want to check back in for this last thing, this is what I want you to hear. We do this because Jesus 
touched people with his hands. Jesus, God incarnate, came down. He became a human being, which is kind of crazy to believe that he put on a body. And then he touched people with his literal hands. People with highly contagious diseases. He touched them. He laid his hands on them. He washed their nasty feet. People didn't wear shoes, by the way, back in the day. They just walked through like literal crap. And Jesus got down on his knees. He took off his outer garment. He tied a towel around his waist and he washed his disciples' feet and he got that muck on himself. And he was spat on at the cross. Because look, we are hopelessly unclean. Not because of what we do and what we put into our bodies, what we put onto our bodies, because of what flows out of our heart. And Jesus makes us clean. He makes us pure and spotless and radiant. Um, And that's why God got rid of those old clean laws. Because he said, now the only way that you come to me, the only way that you get clean is through Jesus. When I... When my wife and I were, in, were engaged, we had very radically different pasts. And you can, you can insert probably whatever you're thinking into that and you will be correct. Um, and it was hard to think about, can these two stories come together? And it meant everything to me when she said, the only way either of us get into this marriage clean is because of what Jesus has done. Um, because we're both unclean. And because Jesus makes people clean from the, out, from the inside out, that's what sets us apart. That's what makes you a light in the darkness is going, I was a mess and Jesus has cleaned me. What makes Christians different from the rest of the world is this. It's not that we, that we, that we live differently or that we are this special clean people that doesn't do anything wrong. What it means is that we learn from Jesus how to love unlovely people. People that we would naturally think are unclean because Jesus loves people. Even the people that you don't. And Jesus loves you. And people don't like you. You know what I'm saying? There are people that are like, nah. <laughs> and Jesus loves you. The degree to which we love the unlovely shows how much we actually believe that's true for ourselves. It's good news if we're willing to hear it. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much um, that you love us enough. Um, to heal us, to clean us. And Lord, uh, there are things that we use to put barriers between us and other people all the time. Lord, help us um, to move toward people, to know that you love us, that you clean us up. And Lord, whatever those things are tonight that feel natural to us, um, would you help us to begin to move away from them and instead to listen to your voice because you're our good, good shepherd. We pray in your name. Amen. Soft and lonely, you, you lost and lonely. Thank you.